This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a pleasing place in perpetuity in a petulant world. It's like the Muppet Show, except we have real frogs here. <laughs> Tons of them. Yes. All we'll, over the place. And we'll have more in the spring. Oh, my God. I hope they croak one day. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> I'm Joel MD, also known as Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net. And a heck of a guy, Absol- if I may say Absolutely. So. I would say the same thing. I'm Nurse Amy. My real name is Amy Alton, and I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. She's so tough, she bites the heads off bats and makes dumplings with them. They're delicious. Well, I made dumplings last night, but they were chicken basil. (laughs) Not bat. (laughs) They were crunchy like bat skulls. No, they weren't. That was the cabbage. Well, (laughs) what can I say? They were delicious. Thank you. I appreciate it. On this show, you're going to get all the information you need about... Bat dumplings, of course, but you'll also get the conventional medical wisdom and the unconventional medical wisdom, whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared in tough times. But you got to listen to this first. No exceptions. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. You sound like you've done that before. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe. A few hundred maybe. times. Maybe, baby. <laughs> or don't see if I care. Well... Don't call my bluff. I'll cry. I do I'll care. I'll cry. <laughs> but what happens in a disaster when the hospitals are crowded and there's nowhere else to turn? Well, when it's least expected, you are selected. As medic, that is. So you better get off your duff and learn some stuff. Before we get started, I want to mention that the new fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, greatly expanded, greatly revised, still hot on the shelves. If you haven't gotten our greatly expanded new book, Check it out, won't you? It's Amazon. You can find it in black and white there, or you can find it in black and white or in color at store.doomandbloom.net. We'll even sign it personally to you if you want. If you want. (laughs) That's right. Or make it a gift, and we'll sign it to whoever you want. That's right. All right. Hey, you know, when good times are bad, families can face any number of events where trauma can cause an injury. In the United States alone, there are over 37 million emergency department visits annually due to some type of trauma. Off the grid, it stands to reason that activities of daily survival performed by people unaccustomed to them, like chopping wood, things like that, will greatly increase the number of traumatic wounds. In austere settings, many of these become infected. Failure to act to prevent infection can lead to headaches and heartaches for the family medic. Antiseptics come from the Greek word anti, against, and septicos, which means rotting, against rotting. Antiseptics greatly decrease the number of disease-causing organisms on skin and mucous membranes. And having some on hand can save lives, but remember, your supplies are going to eventually run out in a long-term disaster. Let's discuss how to use antiseptics as well as how to improvise germ-killing agents off the grid. Many people confuse antiseptics, disinfectants, and antibiotics. The goal of all of these substances is to combat infection, but they're not the same. Disinfectants are applied to non-living surfaces, such as countertops or tubs, things like that. The septics, on the other hand, well, they are applied to the surfaces of living tissues, like skin. Doctors use disinfectants to clean their exam table, then they use antiseptics on the skin of patients that are undergoing procedures on that table. Antibiotics are most effective if they're injected by or injected into a patient, something you really don't want to do with either disinfectants or antiseptics. Antiseptics are useful for cleaning hands. 
Antiseptics are commonly used in scrubbing before exams, surgery, and other medical procedures. I've done tens of thousands of these scrubs in my career. Disinfecting mucous membranes. Mucous membranes include the oral and nasal cavity, the vagina, the urethra, things like that. They can be utilized to prevent or treat infections in these areas, such as before inserting a urinary catheter or as antiseptic lozenges to help with bacterial throat infection. Cleaning the patient's skin before procedures is another use for antiseptics. When applied to the skin, antiseptics provide some protection against the invasion of microbes into surgical incisions or other open wounds. Various types of commercial antiseptics exist. The two most popular are povidone iodine, also known as betadine, and chlorhexidine, also known as hibiclens. These products are used by caregivers to scrub hands and paint areas on the body where incisions are being made. For povidone iodine, also known as betadine, gently clean the affected area with soap and water, then apply the solution to the affected area for up to a week if you're doing it on a particular wound, let's say, that's healing, and let dry every time before bandaging. Chlorhexidine, also known as hibiclens, that's considered to be superior, actually, superior to povidone iodine as an antiseptic prior to performing surgical procedures. It's usually applied to unbroken skin or small cuts, not really meant for use, however, in deep lacerations or other open wounds. You can, however, use dilute betadine here. Then there are silver compounds. Although not used for surgical procedures, topical silver compounds are known to be effective against various types of wound infections. Indeed, before there were antibiotics, silver compounds were applied to skin lesions to prevent and even treat infections. Drinking silver solutions, that's a little more controversial, although some people do swear by it. Various household products are also known for their antiseptic properties. Sodium hypochlorite, which is household bleach, hydrogen peroxide, alcohols, and others have been used for more than a century to prevent and fight infections. Let's talk about these. Chlorine products. Germ-killing solutions, they can be made from liquid bleach, which is sodium hypochlorite, or solid crystals, which are above calcium hypochlorite. These are often used as a disinfectant on surfaces, and diluted chlorine solutions can, if they're used properly, be helpful for wound healing. Now, although not commonly used today, a sodium hypochlorite solution in varying concentrations was a standard wound cleaning option during World War I and may be helpful for the medic in survival settings. This was known as Dakin solution, D-A-K-I-N, and it's simply a warm mixture of bleach, baking soda, and boiled tap water. Its use in various strengths is published in detail in our fourth edition. You'll find a lot about it there, and also in articles at our website at doomandbloom.net. Just look up Dakin solution. The problem with bleach is that as a liquid, it loses potency within, let's say, six months or so. Calcium hypochlorite, however, is longer lasting since it's available as crystals in certain pool cleaning products like Pool Shock. To make a chlorine solution from calcium hypochlorite, you want to add one heaping teaspoon to two gallons of water and stir. This makes a chlorine solution similar to bleach, which can be used to make Dakin solution or to even disinfect drinking water. For drinking, use eight drops of chlorine solution to each gallon of unpurified water. Double the dose if the water is cloudy, colored, or very cold. How about hydrogen peroxide? Well, they're a one-to-one -one mixture of hydrogen peroxide and water has been used as an antiseptic mouth rinse with a lot of success. It's not safe, however, to swallow. you got to spit it out. Although it's been used on open wounds as well, newly formed cells love moisture and may not tolerate the drying effect of hydrogen peroxide as such. Well, it's generally discouraged for wound care. Now, how about alcohol? Rubbing alcohol, isopropyl alcohol, is best used on intact skin, scratches, and shallow cuts, but it's excessively drying to apply to significant open wounds. The alcohol percentage in a product should always be at about 60 to 70% range to kill microbes, which makes 
Alcoholic beverages, interestingly enough, less than effective as an antiseptic. 80 proof vodka, for example, is only 40% alcohol. So take all those Rambo movies and Western flicks and I don't know, they're just not that accurate. Now, there are a lot of natural antiseptics. When the commercial antiseptic products run out, the family medic is going to need to look to nature for substances that can prevent and treat infection. Some plant extracts and other natural products are thought to have significant antiseptic properties. Here's some. Witch hazel. This is a mild antiseptic with astringent properties, and largely you'll find it used for acne these days. It serves as a gargle for throat issues and also can be applied directly to mild wounds. Then there's grapefruit seed extract. It's known for antimicrobial bacteria, a spray solution of four to 40 drops in about four ounces of water, and you apply it to affected areas two or three times a day. That can work even on larger areas. Then there's honey. If you apply it full strength or diluted with water, raw and processed honey has been found to prevent growth of many species of bacteria. Make, make sure to get raw, unprocessed honey. Its pH profile promotes oxygen delivery to wounds, and some researchers believe that raw honey is superior to antibiotics in treating certain drug-resistant bacteria. It's used for bites, stings, cuts, burns, just about any infection. It has a unique pH balance that promotes oxygen and healing compounds to a wound. Now, when using raw honey on wounds, by the way, always start with clean hands and sterile dressings. It's a messy proposition, so you want to put the honey on the dressing before applying it to the wound. An exception would be a large, deep wound. In that case, you might fill the wound with honey before placing a dry dressing on top. Be aware of possible seepage. This can be very messy stuff. But replace with when wound drainage saturates the dressings, and you see they're obviously soaking wet. It should be noted that there are honey-impregnated dressings that are already commercially available. They're called Medi-Honey. Then there's tea tree oil. And, uh, tea tree oil, is, well, that's a well-known natural antibiotic. It's a pungent smell that goes to it. And it contains antiseptic compounds that are effective against especially fungal infections like ringworms, jockage, athlete's foot, as well as wound healing. For wound cleansing, you want to take about one and a half teaspoons. No, I'm sorry, one and a half tablespoons of tea tree oil and put it in a cup of warm water. Then there's turmeric. Turmeric paste has a compound called curcumin, and that possesses antimicrobial properties, which may enhance wound healing. Mixing turmeric and warm water to make a paste, that's been used successfully to treat dry socket, which is a common infection that occurs after removing a tooth. You apply the paste gently and cover with a small amount of gauze. Aloe vera. Aloe vera is a member of the cactus family. You might have an aloe vera plant on your property. It contains a gel-like substance called glucominin and that promotes wound healing. It's a popular natural treatment for burn injuries as well, certainly something you want to keep around and grow if you possibly can. You apply a thin layer of the aloe to wet a bandage with it, and then you cover the wound. Coconut oil may help. It contains monolaurin, which is a fatty acid thought to have microbial, antimicrobial effects, can be used as a base to make antiseptic ointments. Then there's, of course, garlic. Garlic, everybody knows that it has antimicrobial properties, and it has it because it contains something called allicin. Crush a clove of garlic, mix it with about a third of a cup of water or some coconut oil, and use the solution right away. It does lose potency after a relatively short time. Then, of course, there's salt. Cleaning with sterile salt solution is thought to decrease the risk of infection. You want to mix a liter of water with two teaspoons of salt, put it in a pot with a lid on it, boil it for 15 minutes, and let it cool. There are a lot of other natural substances that have antiseptic properties attributed to them. I'm sure you've used some of them in the past. They include vinegar, baking soda, camphor, lemon juice, uh, a lot of essential oils, anise, lavender, cinnamon, citronella, frankincense, myrrh, lemon, oregano, spearmint, sweet orange, 
I'll tell you, having antiseptics one way or another is going to save lives in a survival setting. Let's talk a little bit about orthopedic injuries. You know, the human body is just an amazing work of engineering. During the course of a lifetime, it handles an incredible amount of stress. Moving parts like the bones, the joints, muscles, ligaments, tendons in your body, they're collectively known as a musculoskeletal system. They give the body support, strength, and locomotion. And the exertions associated with daily activities of survival, such as I mentioned this example again, chopping wood for fuel, for example, are to say the least, they're going to be unfamiliar to the average person and mishaps are going to lead to injuries, many of which will involve sprains, strains, and fractures. The survival group medic can expect to be confronted with these injuries on a daily basis if things go south. Now, many people have heard of ligaments, tendons, sprains, and strains, but only have a vague idea of what they represent. Ligaments are fibrous tissue that connect one bone to another, oftentimes across a joint. Joints are the physical point of connection between two bones, usually allowing for a certain range of motion. Muscles are elastic bundles of protein that function to produce force and motion, and the tendons are strong fibrous tissue that attach to a muscle and to a bone. So the muscles are connected to a bone via a tendon. There are lots of different injuries to these structures. The most common include sprains. The sprains an injury where a ligament is excessively stretched or torn by forcing a joint beyond its range of motion. There are three grades in which uh, they're stretched, partially torn, and then completely torn, which is called a rupture. There's strains. Strains occur when a muscle or its tendon are partially is partially torn as a result of an injury. And of course, I mentioned ruptures. A fracture, of course, is a damage to the bone itself. So let's talk a little bit about sprains and strains. Despite the impressive ability of joints to provide mobility and locomotion, they are moving parts, right? Over time, moving parts wear out and break down. So in survival, you can expect the level of physical exertion to increase the risk of injury and accelerate deterioration. The most common sprains involve the ankle, wrist, knees, and fingers. Classic symptoms are bruising, swelling, and pain. If you haven't had a sprain in your life, well, lucky you. The treatment for most sprains, pretty straightforward. It follows a protocol known as RICE or RICES. This stands for rest, ice, compression, elevation. I add the S for stabilization. Rest, well, R is for rest. Avoid further injury by not stressing the injured joint. In some circumstances, you may not have a choice. But continued strain is going to cause worse damage to the weakened ligament. Cessation of whatever activity that led to the injury, well, that's going to give the best chance for a full recovery. Ice. I is for ice. Cold therapy decreases both swelling and pain. The earlier it's applied, the more effect it's going to have in speeding up the healing process. It's most effective in the first 48 hours after the injury. If you're in the wilderness, I guess you might have to stick a sprained ankle into a stream to get some cooling action, but you should have a supply of shake-and-break cold packs. I think they're an important addition to your medical kit. you got to have some. Cold therapy should be performed several times a day for 20 to 30 minutes each time if possible, and this is followed each time by applying compression. C. C is for compression. A compression bandage is useful to decrease swelling and provide support to the joint. It should be applied after each cold therapy. Pad the area and wrap an elastic bandage like an ace wrap around the injured joint. The wrap, by the way, should be tight but not uncomfortable. It should extend above and below the injury. The presence of tingling, increased pain, or numbness with the wrap in place tells you that it's been applied a little too tightly. Excessive pressure from wraps may also affect the circulation. You may notice the fingertips or toes are turning white or even blue. you got to loosen it immediately. By the way, you should always allow the fingertips or toes to be visible so you can easily see if they're turning colors. So that's, I think, something that's very important. Whether you wrap them from the top going down or top or the bottom going up, 
is a matter of preference, I think. E is for elevation, so that's C, E, and rice. Elevate the sprain above the level of the heart. This is going to decrease swelling, also called edema, at the site of the injury. Edema is caused by fluid that pools where the inflammation is and wherever gravity will allow. By elevating the leg, you help the fluid process itself back into circulation and aid the healing process. Then S, I add S, is for stabilization. Not all protocols incorporate the S, but immobilizing the injury, stabilizing the injury, will prevent further damage. This may be accomplished by the compression bandage, but in severe cases, the use of a sling, a splint, a cast will greatly increase protection to the injured area, especially during transport. This strategy will also help support the patient who's unable to place much weight on the joint. When placing a splint or a cast, always allow a little free space for the swelling that often occurs in the area of the injury. Splints may be commercially produced, such as the versatile SAM splint, structural aluminum malleable splint, or be made of casting material as long as it doesn't surround the entire limb. Uh, they may also be improvised with sticks and cloth or pillows and duct tape if that's all you got. Most sprains, such as wrist and ankle sprains, commonly heal well just using the Rice's protocol and maybe a little pain reliever here and there, like Advil, ibuprofen would be useful, and a lot of rest. Others, however, such as in severe knee sprains with torn or ruptured ligaments, well, they may heal completely only with the aid of surgical intervention, something you're not going to have. In primitive settings, the joint may freeze in this case or lose a great deal of strength and weight-bearing capacity if it is not treated uh, using modern technology. And that's just one of the things that we're going to have to accept. Perhaps the most common sprain joint is the ankle. An inexpensive elastic bandage like an ace wrap can be used to wrap and stabilize the injury, although there are different methods. You might consider starting by wrapping the ankle twice around the ball of the foot, working your way up. Uh, like I said, many people start from above the ankle and work their way down. Both ways are acceptable. I want you to keep the bandage fairly taut, wrapping the bandage several times around the foot and ankle in a figure eight pattern, then finish by wrapping the bandage slightly above the ankle at least twice. The finished product is going to provide support from the ball of the foot to pass the ankle. Pressure should always be lightest above the ankle, no matter which way you start, to help direct inflammatory fluid away from the area and not down to the toes. Secure with the metal fastener or Velcro provided. Some bandages, by the way, like Coban, are self-adhering and will stay in place on their own. So is it more than a sprain? Of course, there are occasions where it's difficult to tell if a bone is broken or if it's a lesser injury, like a joint sprain or a bone bruise, also called a contusion. Look for one or more of these signs. A sprain will generally have less pronounced swelling and bruising than a fracture. A person can usually walk a few steps both immediately after and an hour after a sprain occurs. A fracture, however, is generally so pain painful that no pressure may be placed on injury at all, nor does it improve later on. Sprains are rarely associated with breaks in the skin, but fractures are. So you may have an open fracture where the bone may actually be sticking out or where the bone broke the skin and then went back inside. Sprains involve joints. Remember injuries that are in the middle of a bone, like in the middle of your shin, that are going to be more likely a fracture or a bone bruise than any kind of sprain. Swelling on one side of, say, an ankle is more likely to be a sprain. So if there's swelling on both sides, it suggests a fracture. For sprains, ibuprofen serves as an excellent anti-inflammatory and pain reliever, certainly something to use. Natural remedies may help. The green underbark of willow, aspen, and poplar trees contain something called salicin, a natural pain reliever from which the first aspirin drugs were manufactured. So if you don't have anything, but you do have those trees around, you might consider that. Let's talk about strains for a minute. Strains involve injuries to the muscles and their tendons. The largest muscles are most affected, especially the back muscles. As the lower part of the back holds the majority of the body's weight, you can expect the most trouble there. 
Symptoms of a strain include muscle spasms, swelling, cramping, and difficulty moving. A treatment involves cold packs to decrease swelling for the first 48 hours or so, uh, anti-inflammatory meds and things like that, and rest, of course. After that, heat packs may be more effective in providing pain relief. For muscle injuries, uh, you might find some prescription relaxants are helpful like Valium or Flexeril, uh, Diazepam or Cyclobenzaprine. It'd be great if you had it. I doubt you're going to have them. Uh, at the very least, patients will benefit from massaging the strained muscles. Although you might not be able to prevent exerting yourself off the grid, you could prevent strain with some simple precautions, by the way. You start the day with stretching exercises to increase blood flow to cold, stiff muscles and joints. When you lift a heavy object, such as a backpack, keep the back straight. Let your legs do the work. The object should be close to your body as you lift it. If you're reaching for, uh, for a heavy object, then you have a higher chance of getting an injury. For packs, keep the weight on the hips rather than the shoulders. If you're on rocky or unstable terrain, consider using a walking stick for balance. Remember, any weightlifting action that you perform while off balance is likely to result in a strained muscle. It's important to get joint muscle issues dealt with while there's still a functioning medical infrastructure in place. During uncertain times, you and your joints want to be in the best shape possible to face the challenges. Just think about it. When the technology exists, you got to use it because a bum knee is not conducive to survival. That's something I think that everybody should realize. Hey, we're adding a new segment to the show where I take questions posed to me in the past, oftentimes on our friend Jack Spierko's Survival Podcast. If you have questions you'd like to hear me address on the podcast, send us an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Here we go. Hi, Joel Nendy here, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net and co-author of the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. I was saddened recently to hear of the passing of Dave Wolf Stutz, a great preparedness and firearms instructor who was a fellow member of PrepperNet. Dave passed away from a cerebrovascular accident, which you'll know better as a stroke. I haven't talked about this issue in a long while, so I think it's important to let everyone know about them. A stroke is a medical event in which a blood vessel that supplies the brain with oxygen either becomes blocked with a clot or leaks blood. The effect in either circumstance is that tissue served by that blood vessel becomes starved of oxygen. Within a few short minutes, the region affected begins to die and functions controlled by that part of the brain are lost or impaired. Uncontrolled high blood pressure is considered to be a major risk factor for a stroke, but there are other predisposing factors, diabetes, tobacco, obesity, some heart irregularities. In a sizable number of cases, no obvious cause is actually ever identified. According to the CDC, stroke is the fifth leading cause of death in the United States, with about 800,000 cases a year. Of those who survive a stroke, many are left with a significant permanent disability. Indeed, a percentage won't make it to the first anniversary of the event. The failure to provide oxygen-carrying blood to the brain could occur in one of two ways. One, a blood clot obstructs a vessel needed to maintain circulation to the brain. This is called an ischemic stroke and is the most common type. The blood clot may have formed locally, that's called a thrombosis, or traveled from elsewhere in the body, known as an embolism. In survival, another way an ischemic stroke occurs may be seen in areas where hostile encounters are common. If severe trauma to, say, the chest causes severe bleeding, it may deplete the brain of oxygen to the point that an ischemic stroke occurs. The second way is from a leak from an artery, a vein, or an abnormal structure that causes blood to accumulate in the brain tissue or the space between the brain and its protective membranes. This is known as a hemorrhagic stroke and can occur due to trauma, blood thinning medications, or other causes. 
A hemorrhage places pressure on sensitive brain cells, causing significant damage as blood accumulates. This kind of stroke can be caused by uncontrolled high blood pressure or less commonly by a malformation of a blood vessel known as an aneurysm. An aneurysm is a weakness in a vessel wall that looks like a tiny balloon. If it bursts, a catastrophic bleed into the brain could certainly occur. Sometimes hemorrhage can occur in the area of a blood clot induced ischemic stroke, blurring the line between the two types. The CDC has compiled a list of symptoms that point the medic to the diagnosis of stroke. By learning these often unmistakable signs, quick action can lead to life saved and function restored. Stroke victims will often exhibit the rapid onset of certain symptoms. The classic ones follow the mnemonic, be fast. B, balance. Is the person suddenly having trouble walking or with balance and coordination? E, eyes. Is the person experiencing suddenly blurred or double vision or a sudden loss of vision in one or both eyes without pain? F, face. Does one side of the face droop or is it numb? Ask the person to smile if you're not sure. A, arm. Is one arm weak or numb? Ask a person to raise both arms. Does one arm drift downward? S. Speech. Is speech slurred? Are they unable to speak or are they hard to understand, like me sometimes? Ask the person to repeat a simple sentence, like, the sky is blue. Is the sentence repeated correctly? Also, can they understand your speech? And T for time. It's important to note when symptoms started and when the victim was last thought to be well. The longer the time frame between wellness and weakness, the more likely it will be long term. The presentation of a stroke victim is oftentimes quite striking and an observant medic will make the diagnosis quickly. Rapid action may help preserve function and even life. The large majority of strokes are ischemic blood clot related in nature. In normal times, a patient with this type of stroke might be treated with surgery or a powerful IV therapy that helps break up clots. In survival scenarios, blood thinners like aspirin may be of use, but only for ischemic strokes. If no aspirin is available, salicin from the underbark of willow trees has a similar effect. It should be noted that a hemorrhagic stroke, which is about 20% of all strokes, may actually worsen with the use of blood thinners like aspirin. This presents a dilemma for the medic as the symptoms are about the same for both ischemic and hemorrhagic types. Some believe the hemorrhagic strokes present with a more sudden onset of headache more often than do ischemic blood clot related strokes. As many strokes are caused by elevated blood pressures, antihypertensive meds may help to reduce damage caused. Make sure your people are taking their meds. Blood pressure is usually at its lowest if you place the patient on their left side. Recovery from a stroke is not impossible. The National Stroke Association reports 10% will experience almost complete recovery with another 25% having just minor impairments. Reports suggest that the most recovery occurs soon after a stroke, but improvement may still occur over a longer period of time, especially with rehabilitation. Let's talk about that. Various types of rehabilitation may be used for stroke victims even off the grid. Motor skill exercises. Weak muscles can be retrained to improve strength and coordination. Mild exercise, repetitive movements, these are the cornerstones of this therapy. Mobility training. Patients are trained in the use of canes, walkers, wheelchairs if available. Range of motion therapy. Stretching, reaching, rotation of joints. This helps increase the range of tense spastic muscles. 
speech therapy. With one side non-functional, more effort is required to get enough air to speak. Practice breathing exercises so as to allow the most communication possible. To help with pronunciation, say a set of sounds and later repeat full sentences. Also, perform tongue strengthening exercises like sticking it in and out from side to side, touching the roof of the mouth. These may help form words better for clearer speech. Cognitive therapy. Puzzles, games, things that require the use of memory are helpful to improve brain function. Write words on cards and ask the patient to, let's say, alphabetize them. Have the patient count different amounts of money and then add and subtract to increase the challenge. Checkers, block stacking, word games, these all improve problem solving and fine motor skills. The more interaction you have with the post-stroke victim, the better their morale. This will give them the best chance for a decent quality of life even in survival settings. Better still, regularly monitor blood pressures, blood sugars, other symptoms. This is Joe Altmendi, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Be sure to subscribe to the website at doomandbloom.net. We'll be doing giveaways over the coming year to celebrate our brand new fourth edition. Don't forget, you can find it on amazon.com and store.doomandbloom.net. Why not check out our quality medical kits while you're there? That's a shameless plug. This is Joe Alden, MD. And And Amy Alton. Nurse practitioner. Wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for all your support, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey, we're adding a new segment to the show where I take questions posed to me in the past, oftentimes on our friend Jack Spierko's Survival Podcast. If you have questions you'd like to hear me address on the podcast, send us an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Here we go.